This is Red State Blue Mom and your podcast host, Mama B, inviting you to explore local and national topics of interest as they pertain to life in Southern Appalachia. Welcome to this month's podcast episode of Red State Blue Mom. Since my first episode a little over a month ago, a lot has happened in our country. As I work on getting this podcast episode ready for recording, I've got to say this Mama Bee is feeling a bit tired and a little bit blue, blue as in being in a blue mood. Last night, I watched the first presidential debate of 2020, as some of you listeners may have done as well. Then I decided to stay up to see what the news pundits had to say about it, so I ended up going to bed way past my usual bedtime. I'm feeling blue because I tuned into what I thought would be a presidential debate, but instead I had a ringside seat at a circus. And I hate to say it, but last night's debate was an insult to circuses and clowns everywhere. The debate was so chaotic that it seemed like a pretty good metaphor for the past four years, but condensed into one and a half hours. If I can use a mute button on my TV remote when I need to, why couldn't the moderator use a mute button when he needed to get control of and moderate the debate? What's the point of having any more debates when there's a good chance they'll be just like this first one, with everyone talking over each other and President Trump not following the debate rules as he and his people agreed upon beforehand? And Melania was obviously in the front row at the debate. Why didn't she hold up a sign for her husband as a prompt? one from her anti-bullying campaign saying, be best, Donald. Might that have enabled President Trump to reset himself and stop bullying Chris Wallace and especially Joe Biden? Okay, well, we're going to move on to a new day, and I want to put the debate behind me and get to the talking points I want to cover in this month's episode. But it turns out my talking points touch on the things in the debate. So for now, I can't put it behind me yet. Anyway, I hope to show you listeners how these talking points are all interconnected, bring in a little side story of Appalachia's contribution to the talking points, and end by saying we can all live happily ever after, but that's probably too much to hope for during these crazy times. So let's begin this episode's journey with these three talking points. Number one, President Donald Trump has said multiple times over the last month and in the first debate that he may not honor the results of this upcoming presidential election unless he's the winner. Number two, we have a Supreme Court vacancy due to the death of liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Republicans are set on filling this vacant seat before the election takes place on November 3rd and before we know who the next president will be. President Trump has nominated Amy Coney Barrett to fill this vacancy. Talking point number three, Let's talk about the elephant in the room that's been taking up a lot of space in our national life for a very long time, possibly without a lot of us even realizing it. So now starting with talking point number one, never in my life would I have ever thought I'd hear a president of the United States disparage the results of an election before the election even happens or say that unless he's the winner, it's a rigged election. I have friends who tell me most of the time, Trump's just joking or being sarcastic. And this is when something extraordinarily scary comes out of his mouth. I say to myself, really? You really believe he's being sarcastic and kidding with us, the American people? Haven't you ever heard the saying by Maya Angelou, when people show you who they are, believe them? 
As Americans, we've always taken a peaceful transition of power every four to eight years for granted. This has been the case since our first president, George Washington, stepped aside after his two terms in office and headed back to Mount Vernon with his wife, Martha, at his side. Here we are in 2020 with a pandemic raging through the country and people afraid to vote in person because of the pandemic. So the safest way to participate in our democracy this election cycle is by mailing in an absentee ballot. But our president is doubting the results of an election with mail-in ballots and tells us we should doubt the results too, unless, of course, he's the clear winner. He claims there will be much cheating and fraud, but only by the Democrats and mainly in blue states and swing states. But President Trump and his wife Melania, who are now Florida residents, will probably be voting by absentee mail-in ballots, but he says there won't be any cheating with mail-in ballots in Florida. I'm surmising it's because Florida is currently a red state with a Republican governor President Trump likes, so it's okay for residents of that state to vote by mail. He feels the results are dishonest when others vote this way, but not dishonest when he and those he knows do it. Current nationwide polling shows more Democrats and blue-tinged independents plan to vote by mail than do red-leaning independents and Republicans. The difference in how people will vote in this election is due to the way people of both parties view the pandemic. Can it be lethal or make you seriously ill, possibly with long-term effects, or is it fairly benign if you get it? Are you listening to what scientists and the medical community are saying? Or is it a Democratic hoax meant to ruin the economy and make Trump lose the election? Because most Democrats are taking the pandemic seriously, they will be the voters who tend to vote by mail, and Trump knows it. Therefore, the daily verbal attacks on mail-in voting by him and his cohorts. The majority of voting data over the years has shown that compared to the overall number of total votes cast in any election, there is an infinitesimal amount of voter fraud. Remember, numbers don't lie. Interestingly, one of the most documented and talked about recent and prominent cases of absentee mail-in ballot voter fraud occurred in North Carolina by Republicans when Trump was president. And just an aside, did you know that at the beginning of our country, Tennessee was once part of North Carolina? Because of this, I feel North Carolina is a twin sister state to Tennessee separated after being conjoined in Appalachia for many years. Now getting back to a serious case of voter fraud that we were just talking about, President Trump and his Republican Party always accused the Democrats of voter fraud without any proof. In this Republican case of voter fraud dated to the 28 midterm election, and so egregious it ended up in the courts, a Republican political operative oversaw an absentee mail-in voter ballot harvesting scheme on behalf of a Republican candidate, a Southern Baptist minister named Mark Harris, who is running for North Carolina's 9th District. The congressional race was a very tight one, and when election night was over, Harris had a very narrow lead over his Democratic opponent. When massive voter fraud came to light, a new election was ordered by the bipartisan North Carolina Board of Elections, and Pastor Harris stepped down from running again due to health problems. I don't know, maybe caused by the stress of the congressional election and subsequent voter fraud on his behalf? Who knows? In the special election held for this congressional seat, Republican State Senator Dan Bishop won, becoming the U.S. Congressman for North Carolina's 9th District. Congressman Bishop, when in state politics, 
was the sponsor of North Carolina's bathroom bill that prohibited transgender citizens from using public restrooms. I guess he's never traveled outside the U.S., especially to Europe, and had to use a gender-neutral restroom. He regularly refers to abortions as infanticides, and is a supporter of the Proud Boys, the very same Proud Boys that President Trump told to stand back and stand by after he was asked by the debate moderator if he was willing to condemn white supremacists and militia groups who have been participating in the protest and violence in Portland, Oregon, and Kenosha, Wisconsin during the Black Lives Matter protests happening around the country. The Proud Boys are a chauvinistic, white nationalist, far-right, neo-fascist militia organization. They were also in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, where neo-Nazis held an event that led to the death of a protester. Afterward, you might remember, President Trump said there were fine people on both sides when he was asked about the violence and death at that Charlottesville protest. The Southern Poverty Law Center considers the Proud Boys a hate group and an alt-right fight club. Obviously now, Congress has a Republican legislator from North Carolina, which includes portions of the city of Charlotte, who supports right-wing domestic terrorists, to put it bluntly, and makes sure he's seen with President Trump at every North Carolina rally and at every chance he gets. There's another reason why President Trump disparages absentee mail-in ballots, and that's because each state is in charge of their own voting systems, including mail-in ballots, and most, if not all of them, allow the absentee mail-in ballots to be counted in their election results as long as they are postmarked with the date of the election, in this case, November 3rd, or even past that date as long as that alternative date has been established by their state legislature. This means that counting these legally postmarked mail-in ballots may take some time to count, and more than likely, the results of voting in this presidential election in a number of states, especially those swing states that President Trump won in 2016 but may lose in this election, will cause the overall voting total to be delayed well past midnight on Tuesday, November 3rd. I have heard it said that this vote count delay due to having to take the time to verify the information and signatures on the absentee mail-in ballots will create a red mirage, meaning that it will look like Trump has won by midnight November 3rd, but all the legal votes may not be counted by midnight of election night because of various state laws allowing the postmark of November 3rd absentee mail-in ballots to be counted well after midnight, or a date is determined by a particular state's legislature. For instance, my post office has its last mail pickup at 5.30 p.m. every evening. In Tennessee, for me to vote by absentee ballot, I have to request my mail-in absentee ballot by October 27th, but there are lots of qualifiers for me to get one. Though in Googling absentee voting in Tennessee, and I have to tell you, I think this is kind of funny in itself, because the website is listed as sos.tn.gov. How did they ever know a lot of us in Tennessee have been sending out a voting SOS? Anyway, I digressed. So in Googling sos.tn.gov, I definitely see I qualify in two ways to vote by mail. I'm over 60, and I also take care of a disabled parent in my home. But if I request my absentee mail-in ballot by downloading it on the deadline date the website is showing, which is October 27th, 
I will not have much time to fill it out and run it down to my local post office on the due date of October 27th, so it is postmarked by 5.30 p.m., and then I have to hope I filled out the application fully and correctly, that the powers that be agree that I meet at least one of their qualifications to qualify, and I'm approved for an absentee ballot. The moral here is, request your absentee mail-in ballot now, ASAP, immediately, if you want to vote by mail. Then make sure you mail it way before the October 27th deadline so that it is postmarked by that date at the latest. If you are wanting to drop off your absentee mail-in ballot or are having someone drop it off for you at your county election office, make sure you know their operating hours by consulting the sos.tn.gov website because hours vary by county. Let's put all of what I just said in another way. The state of Tennessee does not at all make it easy or convenient for someone to vote by absentee mail-in ballot. It makes me angry, but to quote our current president, it is what it is. As I said in my last podcast episode, I want to be sure my vote counts this election, so I will be voting in person during early voting, which for Tennessee is October 14th through 29th. I'll be wearing my mask and using hand sanitizer. Now, let's get back to the red mirage on election night that I mentioned previously. The mirage will be that most Republican voters, encouraged by President Trump, will be voting in person this election. Republicans know they will have the election night edge in votes when the greater percentage of Republicans will be voting in person and the greater percentage of Democrats will be voting by absentee mail and ballot. So depending on the state, the majority of votes cast by Democrats may not be counted by the end of election night because of the sheer number of them needing to be counted, but still legally postmarked according to that state's laws. This will allow Trump to crow if he's won the election and say the election is over in favor of him and that any votes counted after midnight on November 3rd are fraudulent. Remember, Trump and the person he put in charge of the post office, Louis DeJoy, have already removed a great many mail sorting machines and drop-in mailboxes, which is going to slow the whole absentee mail-in ballot counting process down, especially if you waited until the last minute to mail in your ballot. This isn't like mailing Christmas or holiday cards, where if you know they might be late, depending on the date you mail them, you can say to yourself, oh well, they're in the mail, and it's the thought that counts. I know because some years I'm at fault for doing this. As the saying goes, close only counts in horseshoes. As a voter, especially this year if you're voting by mail, you have to be dead on right on everything as listed on your application and dead on right about your ballot being mailed early, by the right date, and also having a timely postmark because if you're not dead on right about everything concerning your mail-in ballot, your vote is going to be dead on arrival. Due to a possible red mirage scenario, we all have to be mentally prepared whether we're a Republican, Democrat, or independent voter. Never in our history will we have so many people of both parties voting by absentee mail-in ballot. This is new territory for our country, and we will need to keep calm and be patient to see what unfolds. I think the votes in some states will not be contested by the Republicans at all in any way such as I don't see any worry about votes in very red Tennessee being contested 
because the Republicans already know the state is locked in for them in the Electoral College. But contesting vote counts in swing states is definitely a possibility, unless it's a massive turnout above and beyond for Joe Biden. I guess you never know, but heads up. You only have to think about what we went through in the 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, with counting Florida's hanging chads to see who would get Florida's electoral college votes. We did not know the true election results on election night in 2000. And the decision as to who was the winner in the 2000 election went all the way to the Supreme Court and then was decided along strictly party lines because, at the time, the Republicans had a narrow majority in the Supreme Court. There's a good chance this election will end up in the Supreme Court, too, and it will be an even more incredibly antagonistic and virulent kind of situation than it was in 2000 when we had candidates who valued the historical norm of a peaceful transfer of power and the graciousness that goes with that on the part of the loser even after all the confusion and upset and the Supreme Court deciding the election. Unfortunately, none of us can say with certainty that this will be the scenario of this election. And now that brings me to my second talking point of this podcast's episode, the Supreme Court vacancy caused by the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. May she rest in peace. The notorious RBG, as she's affectionately called by her fans, was a feminist icon who made our country a better place to grow up female, and male too for that matter. The only female and the only Jewish person to ever lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. She was an advocate for social justice, women's rights, and gender equality way before she was a Supreme Court justice. Before she was a judge, she argued a number of cases before the Supreme Court pertaining to these issues. When she was nominated by President Bill Clinton to the Supreme Court, the summer of 1993, interestingly, at the suggestion of former Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican and a friend of the current senator from Utah who succeeded him, Mitt Romney, Ginsburg was considered a moderate consensus builder and would add to the diversity of the court because she would be the first female Jewish justice. She was the second female nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court after Sandra Day O'Connor, a President Reagan appointee. During Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Senate confirmation hearing, she refused to answer questions on her view of the constitutionality of certain hot-button topics of the time because it might concern an issue she would have to vote on as a Supreme Court justice should she be confirmed. She did answer questions on already settled law, affirmed the right to privacy under the Constitution, and gave her thoughts on gender equality since, as I mentioned previously, in her younger days, She had argued some cases as an attorney on those matters before the Supreme Court. Though Ginsburg was not the first Supreme Court nominee to demure on answering specific questions in her Senate confirmation hearings, conservative pundits and senators came up with the phrase for nominees who choose not to answer questions outright as the Ginsburg precedent. When Chief Justice John Roberts was going through his confirmation hearings, he used the Ginsburg precedent. You might hear this term mentioned by pundits, commentators, and Republican politicians during the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's nominee to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. I'm thinking listeners are already aware of why the situation is so contentious between the Republicans and Democrats after Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett as a Supreme Court pick. But let me review. 
When Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died in his sleep on a hunting trip in Texas, while Barack Obama was president, a seat on the court, a vacancy, opened up paving the way for President Obama to nominate his choice for that seat. The Republican-controlled Senate did not want the Democrats to fill that seat with a liberal-leaning justice, so Mitch McConnell and his Republican colleagues holding majority control in the Senate, decided it was in their party's best interest to make sure they obstructed filling that Supreme Court vacancy. They told all of us that it was up to the American people to decide which party should fill Scalia's empty seat so they would wait 10 months until the results of the 2016 presidential election were clear. They wouldn't even meet with Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, nor would they bring a nomination vote to the Senate floor, which would have been along party lines anyway. You gotta hand it to the cunning and calculating Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans. They kept that seat open so their presidential candidate, if he won, could fill that empty seat even when, according to the Constitution, President Obama had every right to fill it. When Donald Trump became the 45th president of the United States in the 2016 election, the Republicans had checkmated the Democrats' ability to seat a Supreme Court justice. Fast forward to the present, with only weeks to go before this election, and the Republicans still obstructionist and now add hypocrites to a description of them, now with a presidential election even closer in time than in 2016, they are going against their previous stance that it's an election year and let the American people decide which party should fill the empty Supreme Court seat of Ruth Bader Ginsburg by who they elect to be the next president of the United States. The Constitution gives the Republicans the right to nominate and even confirm a Supreme Court justice without any regard to a date or an election on the horizon. Just like the Constitution allowed the Democrats to nominate and hopefully get Merrick Garland confirmed to the Supreme Court 10 months before the 2016 presidential election. But at the time, the Democrats did not control the Senate. Current national polls show the majority of Americans are in favor of holding off on filling that empty Supreme Court seat until after this 2020 election. But that's not going to happen with the Republicans controlling the Senate. Republicans now have the power, through their nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, to make the Supreme Court a majority conservative court for many decades to come. But why should we be concerned? This leads me to my third and last talking point. The elephant in the room. I don't feel this elephant in the room is talked about enough, and that's a great big shame because it affects each and every one of our lives on a daily basis, pretty much without us even being aware of the degree of its influence. The elephant in the room touches every aspect of the other two topics I discussed previously. Number one, President Trump not accepting the results of the upcoming election unless he's the winner. And number two, the Supreme Court vacancy that needs to be filled because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. I've got to say, with a lot of trepidation and a little angst, I'm plowing ahead with this next talking point. Let me first say, I don't know if any of you listeners ever heard your parents say this when you were growing up. Never discuss money, religion, or politics. But here I go discussing things that people normally don't do in polite company, but I like to think all my listeners are polite. The elephant in the room during this election year is religion. Overtly, it's people who are evangelical Christians, Christian fundamentalists, charismatics, or religious right people. 
Covertly, it's the strain of Christian dominionism that often runs as a vein through these faith communities that's of concern. I know you're already aware of religion's influence on politics, especially Republican politics, and we'll discuss that coming up, but Christian dominionism is an influential and powerful subset within the evangelical and religious right communities. From here on out, when you hear me say religious right, I am referring to people of a professed religious faith, for example, practicing Catholics or Mormons, who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves evangelicals, but would still be part of the religious right. For decades now, the Republican Party has taken on the mantle of Christianity, therefore coming close to saying it, but without most of the time saying it outright. We Republicans have Jesus on our side, and we are filled with the discerning light of God's knowledge. And you Democrats do not have God on your side and are under the influence of evil forces and darkness. How do I know this is how a majority of Republican evangelicals and the religious right think? I was raised in a very conservative, fundamentalist religion, and as a young person, I evangelized by going door-to-door and pretty much would say this to people while standing on their doorstep and quoting scriptures. Then I married into a mostly evangelical Republican family, and now I'm surrounded by this religious belief system because of living in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Tennessee. I want to state up front that I know and love a great many wonderful, loving, kind, sincere in their faith evangelicals and religious right people, as well as wonderful, loving, kind, sincere people of other faiths not considered Christian. Politics and religion are not a litmus test for my friendship. The vast majority of evangelicals and the religious right voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and more than likely will vote for him again this November 3rd. My evangelical friends who did not vote for Trump in 2016 and definitely won't vote for him in this election are mostly in the closet about how they voted. This very small minority of people of faith do not feel the Jesus of the Bible they personally know and love would approve of one or more of the following regarding President Trump. His morals, how he treats people, his denial of climate change, his cozying up to white supremacist groups, and or his immigration policy. When it comes to the polarization of the citizenry in our country these days, and then having this president, I've often heard people ask, How did we get here to having Donald Trump as president? How did our country get this badly polarized? The Republican Party that I grew up with is unrecognizable to me in 2020. How did this happen? Why do over 80% of evangelicals in the religious right vote Republican? The simple answer is that they've been told by their leadership since the election of 1980 that God has chosen the Republican Party to represent his interests on earth. That in this imperfect world, The Republican Party is the party that looks out for your evangelical and religious right interests far more than the Democratic Party, because remember, the Democrats don't have God on their side. For those of you old enough to remember, it was Ronald Reagan who won the presidency in 1980 after figuratively putting the Bible in his back pocket and embracing the evangelical and religious right to gain their vote. Reagan, through the Republican Party, promised that if he had the chance— He would nominate and put on the Supreme Court justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade, which became law in 1973. Roe v. Wade, starting in 1973, reshaped our country's politics, causing a schism that became two movements, 
abortion rights, and anti-abortion, or as we mostly call the two movements today, pro-choice and pro-life. Just a side note, at the turn of the last century, the subject that upset evangelicals and caused them much consternation was the teaching of evolution in public schools. Evolution is still causing them consternation and upset since most schools these days teach evolution alongside some form of creationism or intelligent design. But by the time 1920 came around, laws had been enacted in many state legislatures, especially southern state legislatures, forbidding the teaching of evolution. In 1925, the ACLU decided to finance a test case and asked a high school teacher in Dayton, Tennessee, John Scopes, to teach evolution in his classroom, thereby getting himself arrested under the anti-evolution Tennessee state law at the time. The subsequent trial became a famous historical moment in Appalachian, East Tennessee, called the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's an interesting historical event still pertinent today and worth a Google. It's also worth a drive down Interstate 75 from Knoxville to Dayton, Tennessee, to take a tour of the courthouse where the trial took place and visit the little museum in the basement. What's interesting about the Scopes Monkey Trial was that even though John Scopes lost his trial by jury and was found guilty of breaking Tennessee law, it was really the evangelicals and fundamentalists of the day who symbolically lost because it was a humiliating political and cultural defeat for them. This was due to Scopes' attorney, Clarence Darrow's defense of Scopes by using scriptures from the Bible to show that taking every verse literally or fundamentally at their core can cause confusion and come across as not logical. Their religious fundamentalist champion and the attorney defending the state of Tennessee's law, William Jennings Bryan, a three-time presidential candidate, died shortly after the conclusion of the trial, some say because of all the stress. If you'd like to have a better idea of the trial in its totality, you might like to watch a movie made in 1960 starring Spencer Tracy as Clarence Darrow called Inherit the Wind. Evangelical fundamentalists of that day lost their leader and their political and cultural standing at the time, so they pretty much decided to stay away from politics until 1973, to be exact, when Roe v. Wade became law. From that time on, the evangelicals and religious right decided that getting rid of a woman's right to choose was absolutely necessary, and the best way to do it was to get to the polls and vote against any candidate who said they supported Roe v. Wade. It wasn't until Ronald Reagan openly courted evangelicals and the religious right in the 1980 election that they found their man and a forever home within the Republican Party openly becoming a political and cultural force to be reckoned with, a force who could deliver votes that could influence elections at every level of government, from local school boards, state legislatures, and all the way up to the presidency of the United States. And any candidate for president courting their vote would have to swear fealty to their religious convictions and agenda to get their vote, through promising to appoint Supreme Court justices if given the chance, justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade and restore Christians' religious rights that they felt had been taken from them over the years, like prayer in public schools, displaying the Ten Commandments on public property, or religious rights they would like to see become law, such as openly and legally being able to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. Evangelical leaders like Francis Schaeffer, Jerry Falwell Sr., Pat Robertson, and many, many others 
would basically say to their followers and congregations, we are not coming up against just human beings to beat them in elections. We're going to be coming up against spiritual warfare. We are warriors for Jesus Christ. Their goal was to build from below to take over from above. The evangelical and religious right communities mostly insist that President Trump is a Christian hero who is standing up for religious rights. They all know there is no perfect human being, Donald Trump least of all, but his religious convictions are irrelevant because they want a strong man who can defend and protect Christians over democratic politics. That's democratic with a small d. Because a democracy doesn't hold their loyalty and fealty as much as their dream of an American theocracy or theonomy with God running things through his chosen ones on earth. They feel they are a small, severely embattled minority group subject to persecution and political repression. There is no greater example of their feelings of persecution than during the holiday season when someone says, Happy Holidays! Instead of what's to them the correct greeting for the foremost holiday of the season in their way of thinking, Merry Christmas! They don't care about being inclusive of every American's belief system or faith, if it's different from Christianity, or even some sects within Christianity, as something the Founding Fathers meant to happen since the majority of the Founding Fathers they say were Christian. You may have seen a clip of Trump telling reporters that he is the Chosen One. A lot of people seeing that news clip laughed it off as having no meaning, just something funny Trump would say in jest to goad reporters. But President Trump saying this occurred not long after a group of evangelical and religious right faith leaders had a meeting with him in the Oval Office and laid their hands on him while praying, essentially anointing him as God's representative on earth for the American people, a hoped-for theocracy or theonomy based on and run by political laws and principles. What I just said is the essence of Christian dominionism and add to that a belief in Christian nationalism. Again, not all evangelicals and people of the religious right are Christian dominionists, but enough of them are to cause concern for the health of our democracy. Trump has given evangelicals and the religious right a number of Christian victories they've been looking for over the decades. One prominent victory occurred when the Trump administration moved the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This event feeds into biblical end times prophecies where God needs to reestablish his kingdom at his holy city of Jerusalem, the city where in ancient times his temple stood. When God's kingdom is established again in Jerusalem, the end times can begin culminating in Armageddon and the subsequent victory of God and his people over Satan and his evil minions. So when Democrats see someone like Amy Coney Barrett nominated for the Supreme Court, who probably is a Christian dominionist based on a Google search of her, there is cause for concern that settled law like Roe v. Wade will be overturned, that the Affordable Care Act will be done away with, labor rights and voting rights and social justice may take a hit, along with gender rights. Getting back to Donald Trump and the Republicans pushing to confirm Amy Coney Barrett as soon as possible before the election would seem to imply if she's a Christian dominionist and Donald Trump is the chosen one of that subset, and in general of evangelicals and the religious right, whether dominionists or not, it stands to reason that if the election ends up in the Supreme Court, New Justice Amy Coney Barrett would not recuse herself 
and her vote could help Donald Trump be president for another four years, even if he doesn't legally and outright win the November 3rd election. Hopefully, this episode gave you some insight into a bit of President Trump's strategy to win the 2020 election through declaring it invalid and rigged because of mail-in voting. Why and how the Republicans will get control of the Supreme Court through filling a vacant seat before the election, just possibly helping Donald Trump stay in office for a second term. And lastly, now you know about the elephant in the room and how it's influenced our homeland for a lot of years as an undercurrent in our politics, and now has a lot of influence in the 2020 election. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I'd like to be able to say in conclusion, and we all lived happily ever after, but that's probably too much to ask for during these crazy times, and besides, only time will tell. I'd like to leave you with a few thoughts to ponder and take to heart. You can't go wrong in life if you treat everyone the way you would like to be treated. And please be kind to everyone you meet because you do not know what battles they are fighting on any given day. 